Welcome to a special edition of BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury. Today we have two special guests joining our pod to discuss what's next for companies developing countermeasures against the COVID-19 pandemic. Otello Stampakia is the founder and managing director of Omega Funds. Launched in 2004, Boston-based Omega has roughly $2 billion under management. Otello's firm creates and seeds companies, invests in venture rounds, direct secondaries, and public investments. Be it therapies targeting large markets or rare diseases, validated targets, or novel tech. For all his success as an investor, I am sure that Otello's proudest moment in his career came when he was invited to join the BioCentury SAB. Our other special guest is Umar Ruffit, Senior Managing Director at Evercore ISI. Umar heads large cap therapeutics coverage spanning biotech, pharma, and specialty pharma. Umar is an institutional investor, Hall of Famer having been ranked number one 12 times by the magazine. He is the number one ranked analyst for all three sectors he covers, having been a former ink-stained wretch who roamed II's halls, I can say the honor is no small thing. For those who aren't familiar with Institutional Investors Analyst Awards, let's just say it is what the Beard Awards are to chefs and foodies with a dash of World Cup panache, without the Super Bowl halftime show. And we, of course, have our editor-in-chief, Simone Fishburne, the steady hand that keeps the BioCentury editorial team feeling zen. Before we dig into the state of play for biopharma companies, let's take a quick look at the current state of the pandemic. At least 4.3 million people have died of COVID-19, according to Johns Hopkins' COVID-19 tracker, I'm sure that figure is low given undercounting in certain countries and states. 4.6 billion vaccine doses have been administered. Many developing countries are still struggling to get enough vaccines. Delta is on the rise with further variants waiting in the wings. Otello, you've been tracking this closely. How will the fall look? Delta plus Lambda, the booster debate. Bring us up to speed. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. So I'll try to be succinct because these are very tricky topics. I think there's going to be a big difference between Northern and Southern Hemisphere. Obviously, right now, Southern Hemisphere, which compounds a number of those issues, spread of Delta, winter, as well as lack of supply is in pretty poor state. I think developed countries, Western Europe and North America, they have zero issues of supply. There's a bit of a concern of vaccine hesitancy or denial in some cases. But I do think that there's going to be a bit of a ramp up in fatalities, unfortunately, in the U.S. in the next few weeks. We'll probably touch, I want to say, north of a thousand per day by the end of the month. And that's going to push people, hopefully, to vaccinate So I do think cases will continue to go around in the fall. This virus really thrives in in closed spaces with poor ventilation. And so I think vaccination is the only potential safety that we should put in place as much as possible. But yeah, I think there's really quite a dichotomy between developed and developing countries and a fear emerging of variants from that. Maybe we can talk about that later. 
I mean, Delta is bad enough, but that's probably not the end of the evolutionary spectrum for this virus. I do think we're all going to have to probably plan for some boosters, certainly the older amongst us and the ones with immunocompromised system or immunodeficiencies. We're starting to see some pretty scary data. And Umar, by the way, has been very good at tracking this. That vaccine seems to lose efficacy after six to eight months in certain populations. They're still very good at preventing serious illness, hospitalization, and death, but for certain populations, that might not be enough. So I think many of us might have to take boosters come in the fall. Let me ask a question about that, and I'll direct it at Uma to start with, which is, somebody asked me this weekend, a personal friend was like, well, what has this got to do with your industry? You know, are they done yet? So obviously our industry isn't done yet. What should drug developers be thinking about or people who invest in drug development companies be thinking about as we start to talk about boosters or as we understand that we're really not done yet? So that's a complex question. So what can drug developers do? I mean, look, there's an obvious starting point in this, which is there's vaccines available. They're fairly protective, at least for the first few months post-vaccination. What we don't have available is Let's say we were doing this in person and one of us, unfortunately, tests positive for COVID. Could the rest of us take some sort of a prophylactic treatment, an oral or something? We don't quite have that yet. There's very important data coming from Merck and Ridgeback, as well as for Atea this fall. They have a bit of an antiviral benefit, not dramatic. But again, their studies aren't necessarily being done in zero negatives, which is really where the signal should be most profound. But here's what I really took very positively recently. Regeneron put out a study of its antibody in household contacts of COVID positive people, there's a post-exposure prophylaxis study, 80% plus efficacy. And I'm thinking to myself, to the extent orals are available, to the extent they're antiviral, they may or may not have a big clinical impact in people that are already positive, but in seronegatives and or in a post-exposure or pre-exposure prophylaxis setting, they could be quite relevant and quite an important addition to the armamentarium considering a lot of folks are vaccinated, but not everybody. I think that's a very obvious step the industry can take. If you want to shoot for the stars, could we envision vaccines with an even more potent T-cell response? Sure. I think that's still TBD. And I say that because if you look at the way T-cell responses were reported, even the mRNA vaccines, it's not like everybody had a very robust T-cell response. So that's something that could help. In addition, to the extent we could really chase the holy grail of sterilizing immunity, where your nose is no longer a reservoir for the virus replicating in a massive way, like the way Delta does before it overwhelms your immune system, or B, even better, your nose is not even a place where the virus could use in a vaccinated person to infect other people. I think that we haven't quite gotten there yet. And a lot of that, including some of the claims Novavax made early on, were basically made on six NHPs, and all six of them just didn't happen to show detectable titers in the nose doesn't mean you do it on 18 monkeys and see that. So sterilizing immunity, TBD, T-cell response, my understanding is there are companies working on a stronger response from a T-cell perspective, but oral treatments to me is a very obvious next step that hasn't quite happened. And I'm seeing that in the backdrop of Gilead just having announced a discontinuation of remdesivir intranasal. You know, we saw so much momentum at the beginning of the pandemic. Is there still momentum for people to create solutions if they can't see them being applied beyond COVID. And what you talked about, sterilizing immunity, you could argue there's technologies involved in that that will parlay into other infectious diseases, but we also know that's just been a wasteland infectious diseases for investment. So you're nodding, Otello, tell us. <laughs> <laughs> tell us what, whether we really expect people to, to still do anything. 
Yeah, as somebody who has a few scars to show for investing in infectious diseases in the past, I couldn't agree more. I do think, and I'm going to use probably the four most dangerous words in the English language, this time is different. I, I think, <laughs> yes, somebody else said that before me, obviously. But so a couple of things I think are different. I think we're increasingly coming to realize and countries and governments are starting to realize that this will be endemic for a while. But I think about the task of, even just the booster to the vulnerable parts of the population every year, that's a gigantic task. I think that's hopefully going to change the tide in terms of how people look at the broad field. I do think just the endemic factor alone will require demand for not just the vaccines, but many of the other tools that Umar just mentioned. I would add long-lasting subcutaneous prophylactic antibodies who are very active against Delta as a part of the tool. I think this would be something that would be quite interesting for, again, immunocompromised patients. Another thing that Regeneral did, by the way, apart from the proximity study that Umar just cited, their study on hospitalizations also tested antibody levels at hospital admittance and the impact they saw were profound. And that, to me, is just a proxy to select people who are immunodeficient or immunocompromised. So I think these people would benefit from these various tools. I do think it would be important to see how pricing and reimbursement behaves. And I think the next six months are probably not the right time frame to look at that. I want to say 12, 15 months. This, in a sense, and I hate to say this, but this is not as bad as it could have been yet, right? We'll see what happens with future variants. But the mortality that this virus induces is a fraction of what it did for SARS or MERS. So we're not out of the woods, and I can promise you that it will be another thing like this in 10 years. So we just need to have some tools more available. Now, antivirals are harder to develop from scratch than antibodies. So that's the one thing that gives me a little bit of pause on how can we come up with a lot of this. Basically, what we are seeing are tools and compounds that were recycled from targeting other viruses in the past. I think that's certainly the case for Atea and I think also for Ridgeback. We'll see how that plays out. But I am cautiously still optimistic that people will see this as a way to keep investing in the field in the future because eventually we'll need it again. Otello, I'm curious, as an investor, how are you thinking about mRNA companies now? How much does mRNA in a company's toolkit de-risk that company? Yeah, I mean, I would have loved to have been able to answer that question 18 months ago or <laughs> even 15 months ago. Obviously, once you look at the valuations that some of these companies have achieved, it's truly spectacular. I'm not going to comment if it's justified or not, because to a certain extent, some of these companies are saving us from a pretty poor prognosis here. I do think this technology used in the right way, and that's an important caveat, I might come back to that. He's definitely got potential to replace huge chunk of the vaccine industry. I mean, the fact that they're programmable and fast turnaround versus new variants. And I think we're reaching the point now where they can scale manufacturing. I think it's very powerful. But the thing that's truly stunning to me is the level of the immune response that they seem to develop. Because I think we have now data that the two mRNA vaccines that we have available on the market now are the two most powerful vaccines ever developed. Right. So I do think it's a bit of a tactical question. Should I invest in an mRNA company now? I don't think it's just about mRNA. I think there's a lot of other areas in the lipid nanoparticle and so on, which are important. 
but they are definitely very interesting and important technologies that will have applications beyond COVID, I think. I'm going to go back to small molecules in a minute, but let me just take that question to Uma and ask it this way, because there's a lot of controversy over this. Do you think the efficacy of the mRNA platform will translate to therapeutics because it worked in vaccines? Does that mean it will work in for therapeutics? So you're referring to some of the oncology applications, for example? For example, yeah. Unfortunately, and I can tell you, having looked at some of this stuff when some of these companies were in private stages, the evidence did not seem overwhelming on that angle. Let me just put it that way. Have I seen evidence of monotherapy responses with personalized mRNA vaccines against cancer? There is faint evidences of response. Has that ever been proven in a randomized trial? No. Is there like a lot of momentum behind that? Not that I've seen yet. It could happen, but not that I've seen yet. It does look more infectious disease oriented as it stands currently. And even, by the way, even on infectious disease, I think part of the challenge that's happening is a lot of generalist investors assume, okay, great. So for all these years, we should have been developing mRNA vaccines against every single virus. And I'm not sure that's necessarily true. There's some that will respond better than others. There were hints already, for example, one of the things we all at a public health level really benefited from was some of the work Moderna had already done on MERS side. And as well as the mistakes and, and some of the constructs they had come up with, which had not quite played out. Uh, over the years, but especially the MERS construct really helped them, which is another coronavirus heading into COVID. So it's not a coincidence. The first construct they came up with hit 95%. COVID just lended itself to better efficacy. Let's put it that way. Otello, do you want to jump in there? I share the same opinion. I do think mRNA seems to be pretty good at eliciting a strong immune response. So some of that might bring to some responses in cancer. It's not trivial or obvious to do that. And obviously cancer is getting crowded in its own way. We have other agents that activate immune responses in cancer, checkpoint inhibitors and all that. So there is a possibility, but I completely agree with Umer. I don't think it's obvious. So I want to just make one point going back to the small molecules thing. We recently talked to Elliot Levy, previously of Amgen, now heading up a new alliance called the Intrepid Alliance. And they are pretty serious about creating systems for small molecule therapeutics for this and future pandemics. I don't know if it's different this time, Otello will turn out to be true. I certainly hope so. But they are turning to and recruiting major pharma companies to back some of these. And I am with Umar on the idea that Therapeutics is an ongoing need, even when the next one hits, if we don't have the vaccine in place, having therapeutics will be key. I know we're short on time, Jeff, but I do want to ask Otello and Uma one more question, which is really about the role of these preprint publications. I have seen both of you and many other people responding to data published on preprint servers. And I want to know whether you think that this is something going forward. Do you look at those data differently because they're not peer reviewed? Or for you, is that data coming off the presses and is good enough to make decisions on? Well, no. I mean, obviously, depends on the decisions. Some of the decisions we make obviously involve spending quite a few tens of millions of dollars at a time. So we try to be mindful of that. We are building some filters to that. There is a true deluge of information. I, I do appreciate the fact that there isn't this massive gap between the papers being submitted and then being released to the broader world. I think that is very positive for the broader constituencies, not just investors or investigators. But 
I do think we will put some quality filters on the institutions that publish the principal investigators and so on. So I do think it's been a phenomenally positive thing. I hope it continues. There is some resistance we're starting to see from some of the publishing houses. I mean, the public health imperative is still obviously existing, but we have found that incredibly useful and I hope it continues. I think there's two sides of it. Let me lay them both out for you. There's one side of it, which is there's an sort of unprecedented amount of capital going into biotech, which creates an unprecedented amount of data flow, which companies try to keep up with through presentations at conferences. But when you end up with something like COVID, for which there was never a medical conference per se, uh, I suppose there was, but not a real one, along with the fact that observations from hospital level, observations from population cohorts, and observations from sort of states and counties where vaccinated people, how they're behaving over time or how the hospitalization trends are behaving. A lot of that information, it was much easier accessible through preprint service, something that was not doable in the more traditional construct. You submit to a journal and you wait three months and it's too late by then, virus is mutating, things are happening fast. So in a fast changing COVID situation, preprint was extraordinarily valuable. The other side of it is, and I think Otel kind of tried to imply that, which is if you want to do really deep diligence, something very specific, unless it's like a super rapidly changing situation, there's a lot of limitations to preprint servers. The first one, the obvious one being it's not as well vetted. And let me give you a classic example, Simone. You might remember last year, I was doing a ton of work on hydroxychloroquine. And I was so intrigued by that because of one simple reason, not because there was political statements in either direction that didn't matter to me. The main thing was the EC50 values being reported for hydroxychloroquine were comparable to remdesivir. That was key. And then if you take that and you pair that with a PK curve of hydroxychloroquine in the body, and what's the minimum effective concentration that will inhibit a lot of the virus, it looked like a lot of those studies had a pretty real chance. Later on, that didn't play out in any of the trials. Why is that? One of the reasons I've thought about is some of the assays that were used in some of those preprint publications, they were not accurate. And one of the things that I recall now is as much as I said EC50 was comparable to remdesivir, I'm doing a cross-trial comparison. A Gilead properly done study, properly published, compared to a preprint showing an EC50 value off of some Chinese data set. And I think those are some of the limitations of preprint servers. And I think that's what Atella tried to say, but I'm not putting $20 million on investment based on a preprint. But to be able to keep up with COVID, I think the preprint's been amazing. That is really interesting. Thank you. Thanks to you both, Umer and Otello for joining us today and sharing your insights. Super stuff. That's all we have time for. Unfortunately, I, I, we could go on for quite a while on this and maybe we can have you back on in a few months, pick the conversation back up. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science, and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. <laughs>